this sermon. I have that much to say in that much time. So of necessity, I know that what I've prepared is three times too long. So I'm gonna see how fast you can keep up with me. And, and uh, so your, your, this is like a contact sport, okay? This is not passive. If you listen quickly, we can get through more. And if you, so I wanna talk about being led by the Holy Spirit. Um, the scripture is full of treasure that wait for treasure hunters. And, and seekers and explorers and God has jam-packed the truth and with significance and revelation and meaning. It's all wrapped into his word. And today I want to dive into a subject of great importance and you'll catch on as we go through, you'll understand. But in the beginning, I need to lay some history. I need to take you through some of the scripture. I need to lay an overview for what we're gonna do in the next uh, week. Next Sunday, we continue the series. Wednesday nights, we're doing uh, the, uh, uh, our response to the Holy Spirit. So they in lockstep, which is what we're doing at the, at the moment. But this, under, this understanding will bring, uh, uh, I hope, to you a clarity about the dispensation we're in. We, we, we have this great type and anti-type. It's like an overview that shows a marvelous demonstration of what Paul called the shadow and then the reality and uh, the temporary that God demonstrated speaking to an eternal truth. So if you'll stay for me a while, I think the importance of the subject will help you. I want to speak about the feast or the festival of Pentecost in uh, Israel's history, there were seven feasts that everybody had to come to. There were three feasts in one free feast season. 50 days later, there was the Feast of Pentecost that stood alone. And then later on during the year, there were another three feasts. But this Feast of Pentecost was one of the most significant feasts. It's one of the most key feasts for our understanding because it framed and ignited the, the beginnings of the understanding of what the Jews came to understand as their nationhood and the, and the dispensation of that old covenant. And then Pentecost reframes the new covenant and gives us an understanding of how we're supposed to act in the new. And this juxtaposition between the first celebration of Pentecost and the one that started the church is the subject of today's message. So I want to begin with a brief history lesson. Uh, I know that this is, I'm, I'm taking massive strides. I'm just touching in little periods of history and I'm covering massively significant events. But I'm just gonna skim through that because we don't have time. Our story starts with Abraham, who's a moon-worshipping Babylonian, and somehow he comes into a relationship with God. He finds himself in a relationship with the living God, and he becomes God's friend. And God says to him, Abraham, come with me. I need you to get out of here. Come with me. I will take you. I'll lead you into a land that, you know, I can't explain it all. Just leave these people and come with me. And Abraham says, absolutely, I'm in. And so Abraham announces to his family, I'm out of here. Sayonara. And they go, well, what about the company business? What about your families? Like, I'm on the way. Who are you following? This God. Where is he? Abraham just says, I'm going. And so he leaves, and he leaves his culture and his family and his future prospects, and he goes with God. Now, in the process, God makes Abraham a number of promises and enters into a covenant with Abraham. He swores an oath, cuts a covenant, and because and, Abraham says, how can I know for sure? And God says, I'm gonna show you. I'm gonna cut a covenant with you, Abraham. And so God Almighty cuts a covenant with this man, and Abraham is just in this beautiful place. So let's read this in Genesis 12. The Lord had said to Abraham, go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land that I will show you. 
and I will make you a great nation. This is a single man. God says, I'm going to make a nation out of you, and I will make your name great, and you'll be a blessing, and I'll bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse, and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. So Abraham went. Would you have gone if you'd have heard those promises? Probably. Now, the problem is Abraham and Sarah, his wife, are barren, and they can't have kids, but God's promises start with, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to give you a child, all of this, I'm going to make a nation out of you, and he can't even sire a child. With, uh, with Sarah. And so the Lord says, no, it's through Sarah that I'm gonna give you this child. You know the story, long story short, eventually they conceive, they have Isaac. Isaac grows up, um, and Isaac and his wife, Rebecca, are barren, and, the, and uh, again, the, the promises of God are tested, but they have a son called Jacob, and Jacob then and his wife have some challenges, and so there's a complicated story, but eventually Jacob has 12 sons. Are you with me so far? That's about... 17 chapters. <laughs> now, the, the, the 12 sons of Jacob, they, they take the second uh, youngest son and they sell him because they're jealous of him because he's father's favorite. And he gets taken into Egypt. Long story short, he becomes the second in command of Egypt. And there's a famine everywhere else in that region. And so uh, the Israelites, the, the sons of Jacob, eventually come to Egypt to buy grain. And they find out that he's their brother. And so the whole family, all 12 uh, sons or the other 11 sons and Jacob move to Egypt. And they become uh, key people in that region in Goshen. And they... They're under the favor of Pharaoh as long as Joseph is alive. But then Joseph eventually dies and their descendants grow up and they become slaves. They're growing like weeds. They have massive families. They're, uh, but basically, they're just a group of relatives, a, a vague sense of a nation. But they be, they've become slaves and they really have no property. And then this guy called Moses shows up. And Moses said, I met with God out in the desert and he told me it's time for this nation to go and get into your promised land. Because one of the promises God made Abraham is I swear this to Abraham, I'm gonna take your descendants and I'm gonna put them in this land. And you will have your own nation and you'll have your own land. And so we know the, the story, all of Pharaoh's stubbornness against the revelations of God and God begins to display his supremacy primarily to his people over all the gods of Egypt. Because for 10 generations they've been a, 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 a nation of slaves and, uh, and are cowered by the Egyptians. And so God demonstrates his supremacy over all the gods of Egypt. The gods of the Nile and the frogs and the locusts and the cattle and the produce and the flies and the weather and finally over Pharaoh himself who is seen to be a deity there. So now we're caught up with the story. And so Moses comes and uh, he calls, the, but I, the, all of that to say, God says to, to Moses, I want you to call my people to come out and celebrate a festival with me in the desert. And so this is what Moses said. In Exodus 5, Mo Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and says, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Uh, 10, verse nine, we will go with our young and our old, our sons and our daughters, with our livestock and our herds because we are to, fest we are to celebrate a festival to the Lord in the desert. Now that festival in various places in scripture is named in different ways and there's a list for them there. It's not important that you know all of that, just that you know that it's in scripture, okay? Israel's led out of the desert, out of Egypt into the desert and they cross the Red Sea miraculously. They're brought by a supernatural demonstration of the glory of God to Mount Sinai. That journey takes them about 45 days. 
Now, they're going to celebrate this feast that God had said, I want you to come out and celebrate a feast to me. So they knew from the beginning that when they were coming out, there was a festival, there was a party. Basically, God said, I want us to have a party together in the desert. And so they, they're coming to this place and they understand that this is going to happen. And God is going to affirm his choice of them as a nation at this festival. And he wants to make them a kingdom of priests, people who walk in relationship with him. So finally, if you, if you and I, I, we don't have time to get into I can prove this, but it's on the 50th day from the Passover when they celebrated that. 50 days later, which is the Feast of Pentecost, God comes down on the mountaintop, Mount Sinai, and he gives Moses the law. So let me read this to you from Exodus 19. Uh, this is what, the, just before this, God said to the, you yourselves have seen what I did in Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you fully obey me and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you ought to speak to the Israelites. And then he says, he says, purify yourself for two days' time, I'm coming down. And then God comes down on the 50th day. On the Feast of Pentecost, he's coming to celebrate with his people, coming to share the feast. And he says, on the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. And then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke. Why don't you just put up that picture? Let me just, there's a, there's a, that's Mount Sinai. I want you to imagine that entire mountaintop billowing like it's the furnace. There's just clouds of smoke. There's lightning. There's trumpet blasts. There's lightning and thunder. And the whole mountain is trembling like an earthquake. And Moses said, come on, y'all, let's go close. People are like, what are you talking about, Moses? You know, smoke billowed up like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. And at the sound of the trumpets that grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and then the voice of the Lord answered him. So you have this amazing thing where Moses draws near and he speaks, and God thunders from the mountain back to them. And God starts to speak out his heart and his law. God had told Israel to celebrate this feast. It was exactly 50 days. It was the Feast of Pentecost. And there were four basic things that Pentecost did for the Jewish nation. If you were a Jew, formerly a slave, you'd come to this moment. God supernaturally, personally, descends on the mountain. The mountain is trembling under his glory, billows of smoke, and God's voice speaks to them. It was a cataclysmic, amazing, awesome day for the Jewish nation because four things happened. Pentecost's four amazing moments, let me tell you what they are. They were the awesome manifestations of God's glory. No other nation on earth had seen the visible glory of God like this. As part of this day, Moses goes up with 70 of the elders and they go onto the mountain and they visibly see God. And they eat a meal in God's presence. It's freaky. Nobody has seen the awesome manifestations of God's glory like that. Secondly, it was a covenant with Israel. We can go on to the next slide. There you go. It was a covenant with Israel. God cut a covenant with a nation. He made a vow. I will be in covenant with you. Thirdly, 
It established a new priesthood. Unfortunately, it was a priesthood of Aaron, but the Aaronic priesthood was supported by the Levitical house because when Moses comes down, the people are given in pagan revelry, and he says, whoever is still with the Lord, come to me, and the Levites join him. And he says, all right, now take out your swords and run through the camp, and if anybody won't stop, because they were involved in idol worship and sexual immorality, he said, if they won't stop, kill them, and they killed about 3,000 people the day the the law comes down. The priesthood that is established, the Levites who support the Aaronic priesthood is established and because they were zealous for the Lord, because they were zealous to keep the word of the Lord pure, they were made the house of the priests. Now what happens is that the the law comes down and it's attended by a priesthood of death because all you can do with the law is uphold the law, but the law is powerless to change people's lives. And then you had the law, obviously. Now the law, or Torah, is, is massive to, to the Jews. Because the Jews would say, God has given his, his Torah, his law, to no other nation. God gave us his will. He revealed it to us. He made a covenant with us. He showed himself to us. He created priests for us. And he has given us his law. And the Torah was the big overarching thing that sat in the heart and mind of a Jew. To be Torah observant was the big thing. You had to observe Torah. It was sacred to the Jews. It was the words of God. It was, they were spoken audibly to the nation, and then they were written by the finger of God on the, the tablets of stone that Moses was required to take up the mountain. And when they took the Torah, and then they added the, 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 the writings of the prophets, and then they added some of what, what else they call the writings, these together constitute the Tanakh, what we call the Old Testament. And this was sacred to the Jewish nation. And then to clarify, some of the law that was written down came the spoken or the oral tradition. And then what they added to that, they put it all together. And then they added what they call the Mishnah, which is a basic set of books that clarify what the law means. In other words, so the Mishnah says you must obey the Sabbath. And then so the Mishnah said, well, there's 39 things you can't do on the Sabbath. And it wasn't, it just explained it. And then because the Mishnah didn't have a lot of color and then they added to that the, the Gomorrah, which, which is also sometimes known as well, the Talmud. And then they added another Mishnah to that to explain that one, the Mishnah Torah, and then the Shulchan Aruch, and then uh, there's modern Jewish case law. And so there's this, there's this Torah and word and then teachings and then oral traditions and then explanations of the oral traditions and then more. So if you're going to be an observant Jew, there was more books that you could shake a stick at. But whatever you, whether you could read all of those books, the point is that the first five books of, of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy were the Torah. These were the purest of the pure, and that to every Jew that was highly honored and respected. It permeated every aspect of Jewish life. It was the dominant oversight, the standard of reference, the thing that defined their nationhood. It's what set them apart as God's people. It was the final rule for life and conduct, the focal point of wisdom seeking. 
the curriculum for their education, the standard of their justice system. It defined the calendars, their Sabbath observances, the new moon festivals, the seven annual feasts. It regulated their finances. It stirred up their giving. Every aspect of civil, moral, and spiritual life found its source in Torah. So when you talk about Pentecost, the day Torah came, it is a celebrated feast. It is a thing. It is an honor, honorable festival where we celebrated the fact that as a Jew, we became a nation. God made a covenant with us. God gave us a priesthood and God brought us his law. And by that law, we are led. Now, even today, three times a week, portions of the Torah are read in the synagogues and Every week, one of 54 sections of the Torah is read every uh, Shabbat. And uh, there's so many, so many aspects of this. This so permeated the life of a Jew. The Torah was so transcendent, so um, all-consuming, so uh, everywhere you talked, Torah, you, you re referenced it. For the, the young children were taught Torah. Before the age of eight, you had memorized Torah. Every young Jewish boy. Many young Jewish girls. In Deuteronomy 6, 8, there was a scripture that said, you shall bind these, this on, on your hands and you shall put it as a memorial between your eyes. And so uh, some people do that. There's, they, they, they have tefillim, which is, a, which is a little box that's got pieces of the Torah in it. And they stick it on their forehead and on their left hand if they're right-handed or, or vice versa. Because they, Torah was so important. And if you were going to honor God, if you were going to have a right relationship with God, you understood it has to be through this vehicle of Torah. I am Torah observant. I care about it. So the meditation of Torah, the study of Torah, the discussion of Torah was a massive part of Jewish life. On the door, they have a mezuzah, which, has, which is a portion of the Shema, which is, Hero Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And on, on the doorpost, some people have it on every door in the house, but most people just on the outside of the door. To remind themselves, as you go out, we go out into the day with the prayers of Torah on our lips. If you were a Jew, you cannot escape the words and the will and the focus of Torah. And that carried on for thousands of years until Acts 2. Jesus Christ comes and he lives a sinless life and he gives up that sinless life on behalf of all of us. The, the sinless one offered on behalf of the sinful. And when he had perfectly sacrificed himself, and when he'd made one sacrifice for all, for all time, he said, it is absolutely completed. And God said, I'm, I'm no longer dealing with this old style. I'm no longer using the old temple. He tore the, the curtain in the temple. No longer using the old priesthood. I'm no longer needing the sacrifices of the lambs. I have now the lamb that has been sacrificed. And 50 days after that event, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, when all the apostles are waiting together in an upper room, the New Testament Pentecost happened. So let me take you there. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place and suddenly a sound like a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled him. 
This was the beginning of the new dispensation. The old covenant had started at Pentecost when Moses came down off the mountain with Torah. But the, the church is born when the Spirit of God comes down and he gives birth to the new church. He does not come to give us Torah. He came to fill us with himself. And so we live in a dispensation that is separate from Torah. Not that Torah isn't the word of God still, not that it's not still useful to us because the scripture says all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching and training and righteousness. We're not setting it all aside and say it doesn't have any impact on us. It does. It's still the word of God. But I am not subject to Torah because I am now subject to the spirit of the living God who lives in me. And my primary call is not to look outward to some external set of laws, but to respond inwardly to what the Spirit of God is telling me to do. I used to be led by Torah. Now I'm called to be led by the Spirit. So 2 Corinthians 3 says, now in this dispensation, in this understanding of this time that we live in now, the Lord, the kurios, the master, the one who is in charge of the church, the Lord is the spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled faces. What I want you to see in 2 Corinthians 3 is Paul is taking us directly back to the old Pentecost and he's creating a juxtaposition because Paul is referring to Moses who came down off the mountain, but his face shone with glory, so he had to put a veil on it, because Israelites said it was like a sun stare. They couldn't look at Moses. They go, Moses, we want to hear you, but you have to put a veil on, buddy. And so Moses put a veil on so they could, they could look at him. And so Paul says, that was that Pentecost. Do you understand? And he says, but we have unveiled faces. He had to veil his face. We all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, not Moses' glory, but the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So we live in a dispensation where the Holy Spirit is now appointed to be the Lord of the church. That we listen to his lordship, we follow his lead, we go where he says, we do what he wants. We are led by the spirit and not by the law. And so this, this understanding in, is, in, is in a few places of the scripture where Paul calls us to this place where he expects there to be fellowship between you and the Holy Spirit. There should be dialogue, there should be communication, there should be fellowship. So let me take you to two scriptures, 2 Corinthians 13. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Oh, I love the grace of Jesus, and I like the love of God, but no fellowship with the Holy Spirit for me, thanks. And that's what it feels like a lot of the church did. Oh, I, I desperately need the grace of Jesus. Oh, I really need God the Father's love, but I don't want to talk to the Holy Spirit. And so we have Father, Son, and Holy Bible in a lot of churches as what they engage with. Because it's okay to have the grace of Jesus. It's wonderful to have the love of God. But I would rather just stick to the word. Don't make me have to talk to the Holy Spirit. Just give me the Bible and I'll just read the Bible. Which is his sword. Sword of the Spirit. Philippians 2.1 If you have an encouragement from being united with Christ... If any comfort from his love, if any tenderness or compassion, if any fellowship with his spirit. Paul is saying, 
Paul is assuming in this argument, he's saying if, if these things are true, then, then make my joy by being like-minded. Make my joy complete by being like-minded. Paul is trying, he's just saying things that he, he assumes that you all are doing. If you have comfort from Christ's love, if you have any tenderness and compassion, then if you have any fellowship with the Spirit, then, then, then do this. It's just an assumption that this is going on in the church. Now, the, the New Testament goes into specific detail about the beauty of these two Pentecosts. There are many scriptures in the New Testament that refer back to that Pentecost and then talk about our Pentecost because our Pentecost started. And when our Pentecost started, the church was born. A new covenant came down. A new priesthood was born. And the Spirit of God took a place of the law, that, the Torah that used to be. Now, Paul says the glory of God in the face of Jesus is much greater than the glory that Israel saw in the face of Moses. The old covenant is done away with by the introduction of a new and eternal covenant because the old covenant was temporary, but the new is permanent. Where the cold law was written by, on stone tablets by the finger of God, now God's love is written into our hearts and into our minds by the Holy Spirit. The law was a ministry that brought death immediately exemplified in the death of 3,000 people on the day the law came down. But in our Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came down, 3,000 people came to life at the birth of the church. See, Paul is talking about this is the ministry of death, but this is the ministry of life. And when Moses' face had to be veiled, we are called to take off the veil. Because Israel could not look at the glory but we are called to look at Jesus' glory and be transformed into it, become ever increasingly glorious. They were called to Mount Sinai. We are called to Mount Zion. Mount Sinai was a place of fear and darkness and woe, but we come to a place of awe and praise and rejoicing. They were sprinkled by the blood of bulls and goats, which was the blood of their covenant, we are sprinkled with the blood of Jesus, God's only son. At Sinai, God established an Aaronic priesthood attended by the Levites, an entire sacrificial system, the tabernacle, the Sabbaths, the festivals. At our Pentecost, we receive apostolic teaching, priesthood of all believers, the freedom of spiritual sacrifices, and the call to a daily walk with God. This detailed analogy and juxtaposition between that Pentecost and the one that you're called to live under speaks to one central idea. The role the Torah used to have in the life of a Jew has now been supplanted by the role of the Spirit of God in the life of a believer. Because we have, this is what Peter says, you, when you believed, you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you should show forth the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We have become a nation at our Pentecost, with, because, not because we were all under a, a, the circumcision of the flesh, but when we believed, we were circumcised in our hearts, and the Holy Spirit came to take up residence in you, and you are called to be led by the Spirit of God. Now, the Holy Spirit is the one that we look for, for moral, civil, religious life. He becomes our standard. His word and his will are studied and debated and poured over and meditated on. 
What he's doing on the inside of us needs to be heralded because he has come to write the law of God in our heart and in our minds. He pours out his love into our hearts. He guides us into all truth. And whenever we decide to follow him, we get freed from any other constraint. Now, every aspect of our lives finds its anchoring in him. He writes his morality on the inside of us. He guides us into his truth. He speaks into every circumstance. He is our reference point for every activity. He is our fount for every aspect of wisdom. He becomes the source of all our power, the comforter of our souls and our peace in the storm. He and his word now form the basis of the focus of our lives. And when we in truth seek him out, we are freed from any other obligation. When we follow him, his love gets poured into our lives. He says the love of God is shed in your heart by the Holy Spirit. So the moment I open up my heart and say, Holy Spirit, what do you want? He just pours love in. And so whenever I turn to him and I respond to him, the, what the Bible says, Paul says, this is, this is not hard to see. Paul says, listen, if you just step back and you look at somebody, somebody who's not p- trying to please the spirit, the fruits of the flesh are obvious. He said, but if, if they really are walking, if they're open to the Holy Spirit, the fruit of that decision, when, when they surrender to the Holy Spirit's lordship, the fruit of the spirit is love and joy and peace, and patience, and kindness, and goodness, and gentleness, and faithfulness, and self-control. And it's effortless. (laughs) It's not hard to see somebody who's responding to the Holy Spirit. And somehow, we've made responding to the Holy Spirit some sort of fancy fireworks show. The primary way you can see if somebody's responding to the Holy Spirit is is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and goodness and faithfulness and self-control. That's the fruit of the Spirit. Now we lean back against that beautiful, faithful guide the spirit of truth, the spirit of grace, the counselor, the comforter, the powerful executor. He's our north star, our guiding Lord, the ever-present anointing of God that doesn't leave us but teaches us about all things. And so we have come to this Pentecost where we realize this. The first Pentecost had a fading glory, a faulty covenant, a flawed priesthood, and a factious law. But this new Pentecost has a lasting glory. Can we bring that slide up, please? Thank you. A lasting glory, a new covenant. It's a kingdom of priests and an inner law of love. I'm just going to. I'm just going to move on. I was going to prove all of that to you, but you can just take it to the bank. <laughs> if you just believe me, I could, believe me, I could have proven it to you. The Bible says, Moses' glory fading though it was, but we have a glory that never fades. The Bible says God found fault with that covenant, so he said, I'm going to make a new covenant. Those priests had to bring sacrifices for their own sins, but the Bible says of Jesus, 
He didn't have to bring a sacrifice for his own sins. He's a sacrifice for yours and mine. And that law that created enmity between me and God has now disappeared because the Spirit of God took up residence in me. You know what he does? The Spirit of God does two things. The, the beautiful ministry of the Holy Spirit is because the Holy Spirit showed up after God had made all the promises and Jesus had made all the sacrifice. The Holy Spirit came and said, all right, now I'm gonna put these two together. Who's interested? Because the, the, the complete work of Jesus is absolutely done. The Holy Spirit's opportunity is to execute what Jesus bought. And he goes, come here, let me show you. I'll tell you how. It's all yours in Christ because you believed it's yours. Father promised it. Jesus executed it. I'm here to just make sure that you receive it all. So we, we respond to the Holy Spirit. We're led by the Holy Spirit. He produces his nature in the inside of us and he causes us to walk in all the inheritance Jesus died to purchase for us. This is the role of the Holy Spirit. He has come. And so the Holy Spirit takes up residence on the inside of us and, and Paul teaches in, Galatians, uh, in Corinthians, he says, nobody can say Jesus is Lord except speaking by the Spirit of God. Because when you surrender to the Holy Spirit, He makes Jesus so magnificent. He brings Jesus to the highest place in your life. Jesus receives the highest honor, the greatest accolade, the most glory. That's what the Holy Spirit does on behalf of Jesus. And, and when you say, Holy Spirit, you're in charge, you, you suddenly get enamored and blown away by the majesty and the beauty of Jesus. And the Holy Spirit comes into your heart and he says, let me tell you about how much the Father loves you. And he stirs in your own heart a cry, Abba, Father. The response of devotion and tenderness towards of God that loved you that much. When you surrender to the Holy Spirit, he makes Jesus and the Father absolutely beautiful in your life. Hmm. There are a bunch of scriptures that really belabor this point. First Pentecost brought death. Our Pentecost brings life. Romans 8, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. The mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is death. The Spirit gives life because of righteousness. He has made us competent, 2 Corinthians 3, he has made us competent ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter which kills, but of the spirit who gives life. Galatians 6, those who sow to please their flesh will reap destruction, but those who sow to please the spirit from the spirit will reap life and peace. We could go on. This is everywhere. So much of the church has produced a sort of a hybrid legalism that's made up of the best and most preferred parts of the law. Because we want to step away from fellowship with the Holy Spirit. I prefer not to have to speak to Him directly. Uh, tell me rather a set of rules that I can adhere to and I can measure myself against. Give me an external set of authoritative rules that I can measure myself against, but don't tell me I have to talk to the Holy Spirit. And most of the church lives there. In 1997, the Barna Group did a study in these United States and found that almost 70% of the people in these United States said that the Holy Spirit is a symbol of God's presence, but he is not a real person. 70% of the church lives here. Don't tell me you follow the Holy Spirit, Greg. Just create a step between me and him. Because, you know, if you tell people to follow the Holy Spirit, they go into error. No, they come into life. They walk into life. <laughs> See, the scripture says the kingdom of God is not about eating and drinking, about following all these rules. It's about righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. 
Now, it's important that we stay in the Word of God because it's the sword of the Spirit. It's one of the ways you learn how to, how to hear the Holy Spirit's voice. It's very important that we spend our time in the Word. We need to nourish it. It's very important that we stay in submission to the people that God has appointed as overseers because the Holy Spirit does set up some people to oversee, and He holds them accountable for how they watch over your spiritual life. It's important. Some people go, I don't need to go back to church. I can just do my thing. There's so many YouTube channels. Yeah, but God also appoints somebody to watch over your life spiritually. That's also a key ingredient in your spiritual life. So don't, take, don't get away from that. So these are important issues. I'm not saying all you have to do, don't, you don't have to go to church, you don't have to you read your Bible, you just have to listen to the Holy Spirit. No, you read your Bible, submit yourself in a local congregation because there's a part of the way that's gonna keep you safe. But your primary focus ought to be like, like the Jews' primary focus in the Old Covenant was Torah. Your primary focus needs to be the Spirit of the living God. I had so much more to say, but we're going to close it there. I'm going to close with a prayer. Because if you're anything like me, when I hear this, I go, Lord, could you teach me? Could you just teach me? Because I really want the Holy Spirit big on the inside of me, manifesting the love of Jesus through me. I really want the fruit of the Spirit of God in my life. I really want to be led by the Spirit of God. I really want to be able to hear His voice and just do what He says. I want to walk well, because if this is the dispensation we're in, and it is, and if He's supposed to be the Lord, and He is, and He is the one who Jesus said will guide me into all truth, then I need to renew my relationship with Him. So I'm going to pray that prayer for all of us. And if you really mean it in your heart, I think we're going to start something new today. Lord, you said those that are going to be led by the Spirit of God, those are the people that prove themselves to be the children of God. Now, the nation of God, the people of God, are the people who are listening to the Holy Spirit. So Holy Spirit, I pray, as we sit here, Lord, many of us are going, I've not been good at this, I've not, I've not known you well, but Lord, I pray that you'd be kind and gracious and gentle to us. And that Lord, on an individual scale and on a corporate scale, you'd begin to teach us how to hear your voice. And so Lord, for many people for the first time today, we are gonna ask that you would meet with them personally. And I'm asking, Lord, that you'd begin to stir up desires and convictions deep in their spirits. I pray that many people would burn, Lord, with a longing that you give. I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would open our ears and our minds because, Lord, a mind controlled by you is life and peace. And that's what we need. So, Lord, we commit our hearts to this adventure. And we're asking, Lord, teach us and show us how to do this well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.